I'll keep that open in front of you. We'll be referring to that in a second. Um, but before we do that, just a pop quiz, just to put you on the spot. Can I get a, a raise of hands uh, from those who have asked somebody to read Mark's Gospel with the Mark Uncover this year? Hands in the air, up high so people can see. Cool. Now, can you put your hands down? No, keep them up. Keep them up. Not just yet. Um, if they said no. Okay, so we've got Cara and Will has gone down. And, and the other people, they've said yes to the invite. Yeah, you're following so far? I've phrased the question sufficiently okay? Cool. You can put your hands down. Um, maybe from Will or from Cara, can you tell me what that experience was like, asking somebody and then getting turned down? So, um, feel free to jump in. Who wants to serve us better, hey? Um, it was kind of awkward. Um, yeah? So no love lost? No love lost, really. If you went back, would you not ask? Probably ask again, I'd say at one point. Um, but, yeah, I'd say I'll go. Yeah, okay, cool. That's fantastic. What I want to say, that's a success story, just, just so that we're aware of that. Um, as Christians, we've been given the, the message of salvation. We didn't earn it. We didn't uh, do anything to get it. God gave it to us freely so that we could then pass it freely on to others. And so I want to say, brother and Cara as well, the fact that you asked is amazing because it's in the scriptures that we are made wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, and so I just want to say fantastic. Um, what about somebody who had their hands up and maybe looking in this kind of rung here, the, the, the famous five over there? Um, does somebody want to tell us uh, how that went uh, in terms of asking somebody and then they said yes? All right, I'm picking on Ezra because he's being mean to Eunice. <laughs> you didn't put your hand up. Okay, cool. Then I'm going to pick on Eunice because she actually put her hand up. <laughs> Um, who'd you ask, Eunice? I asked a high school friend, a high school friend. Yep. Yep, yep. And were you packing it when you first met up to to read? Yeah, fantastic. So I'm really encouraged that you're doing that. The um, reason I'm asking the question is just so that we can see that it is, one, possible, and two, really beneficial for the people around us. Uh, we've put a lot of effort into kind of embedding Mark Uncover in our structures this year at the CU, so please use that tool. Um, it's going to be one of the most fantastic things you have been given while you're at uni as you seek to evangelise people for Jesus. Uh, so that's just something to chew on. Um, otherwise, let's head back to uh, the passage at hand. This is Mark chapter 14 and chapter 15. Uh, let me tell you about somebody. 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, a Jewish man was arrested and tried by the Roman authorities. He was found guilty of crimes against the state. And as a result of those crimes, he was crucified. Historians tell us his name was Yehohanan, and we didn't find out about him until 1968. They found a stone box containing his remains. It was accidentally discovered on a building site. And to this day, we have no idea who he was. We have no idea what crime he committed or even if Yehoahanan is his actual name. 
As far as we're aware, his crucifixion all those years ago was just one of the many random events of history that would have been significant to some at the time, but ultimately is without meaning today. Compare that to another criminal. Again, happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, a Jewish man, and he was arrested and tried by the Roman authorities. He was found guilty of crimes against the state, and as a result of those crimes, he was crucified. His name was Jesus, and rather than be forgotten, his death changed the course of history. And I want to ask the question, what's the difference between those two events? We're drawing to the end of our semester, the end of our year, and therefore the end of Mark's gospel. And it's at the end of Mark's gospel that everything that's happened in the gospel kind of comes together. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the two key events of the Christian confession, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, This week, we're going to look at the crucifixion, chapters 14 and 15. Next week, we're going to have a bit of fun in chapter 16 with the resurrection. And the thing that we notice as we hit these chapters is that we encounter a problem. Uh, Because especially once you get to chapter 15, where Jesus is crucified, virtually all of Mark's commentary disappears. Gives very little narrative comment or very little explanation. All he does is report the bare facts. And so on the surface of it, as you read this account, it just looks like a random event, just another Roman crucifixion. And that, of course, makes our task difficult, especially if we're reading Mark Uncover with a non-Christian classmate. Because if the crucifixion, that that thing that is central to the Christian faith, um, if, if, if we have it there in, in this kind of uh, story, but it doesn't come with any explanation, then we actually need to be able to explain it to the people who are reading it for them to actually make sense of it and its meaning. And so the purpose of today is actually quite simple. We just want to pin down the meaning of Jesus' death, uh, what it meant, what it achieved, and in such a way that we can, from the Bible, from Mark's gospel, explain it to others. Uh, and we're going to do that in two parts. You can see it there in the outline you were handed at the door. First of all, we're going to look at the plan. It's in chapter 14, verses 1 to 42, uh, and that's where we see a lot of Mark's commentary. And then after that, we're going to look at the plan executed. That starts in verse 43 and goes all the way through to chapter 15, verse 41. And we're going to read through those bare events and we're going to overlay Mark's commentary over the top of them to make sense of them. So that's what we're going to do, okay? That's the plan. Now let's look at the actual plan. It's there in chapter 14. Let's start in verse 1. Chapter 14, we'll see as we read it, begins with a plot to kill Jesus. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Now, this verse introduces us to the end game of the gospel. Up until now, as we've read through chapter by chapter, it's all been talk and vague intentions from the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but now we have it confirmed. They are out for blood. And as readers, as we kind of read along with this and we sympathise with Jesus, it kind of instils in us, I think, a certain level of fear, that sense of foreboding that Jesus is about to die. Now, if this was Netflix, a Hollywood movie, the question we would have at this point is this, how's Jesus going to get out of this? You know, he's he's in a bind, uh, the trap has been set, he's walking in, how's he going to outwit them and come out on top? You know, where's the denouement? Where's that going to come? But one of the things that Jesus has made abundantly clear to us consistently up until this point in the gospel is that we are not talking Hollywood here because Jesus doesn't want to escape their trap. He actually wants to get caught in it. And that's because the chief priests and the teachers of the law are not the only ones with a plan. 
God has one too. And so as we read through chapter 14, we get two indications of what that plan is. And again, they're there in your outline. First of all, we're given some expectations. And then we're given some explanations. So let's go through each of those in turn. What are the expectations that we're given? Well, first of all, chapter 14, verse 8, the expectation that Jesus gives us is that he will die. At the time, he's having dinner out at a nearby town called Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. And there's a woman. She comes in. She anoints his feet with perfume. And Jesus' response is not to go, well, that's kind of socially weird. Jesus' response is to say she has done a beautiful thing because, verse 8, she has poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And so our number one expectation heading into these chapters, Jesus will die. But I want you to notice where this story occurs in chapter 14. Because what happens on either side of it? Verses 1 and 2, you have a plot by the religious leaders. And then again in verses 10 to 11, we return to that plot as Judas, Judas comes to those leaders to betray Jesus. And I think the reason that Mark puts this story of Jesus anointing for his burial between the plottings is to show us that Jesus is not unaware of what's happening. He's in control. And I think this is the most obvious feature of chapter 14. Everything that happens, Jesus is in the driver's seat. And so when you get to verse 12 and they're preparing for the Passover meal, Jesus supernaturally directs his disciples to a room that is already furnished and ready made for them to eat the meal. And then when they sit down at the meal, he makes three predictions about what's about to happen that all come true. So skim your eyes down with me. Verse 18 of chapter 14, he tells them that one of the disciples will betray him. Then in verse 27, he tells us that all of the disciples will abandon him. And then in verse 30, he tells us that Peter will disown him. And the thing that I want you to notice about these examples is that Jesus is not showcasing his future prediction abilities. He's actually showcasing his past prophecy abilities. Get the distinction? It's not future prediction, it's past prophecy. Have a look again at verse 18. Truly, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. Okay, that seems like a bit of an understatement, but let's roll with it. And one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It's one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. And verse 21, here's our key verse. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. And did you catch it? Just as it was written about him. What about verse 27? You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, and here he quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, I, this is God, will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, there isn't one for the third prediction for Peter, but a little bit later on when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes with it because he says that the scriptures must be fulfilled. And so what we're seeing consistently throughout this chapter is that Jesus is drawing on Old Testament scriptures to lay down some very specific expectations about what's about to happen. And all of this points, I think, to a very old and a very well laid plan. And we could date it from the prophets, go back a couple hundred centuries, that sort of thing. So we've got a whole bunch of time there. But we could date it even further and go back to Ephesians chapter one, where we find out that this was the plan since before the foundation of the world. 
God's plan not to merely remedy the issue of sin, a plan B, a response to human foolishness that God didn't see coming. No, this is a plan that was fundamental to everything God is doing in the world, set in place before the world was even created. And what Jesus is demonstrating here is that he knows God's plan. The plan is really quite simple. He's kind of told it to us a couple of times along the way in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. He will be betrayed, he will be abandoned, he will be condemned, and then he'll be crucified. And then after that, he will be raised from the dead. And we see that in chapter 14, verse 28 in our passage as well. That's the plan. That's always been the plan. Betrayed, abandoned, condemned, crucified, raised again. But here's the thing. If you're reading that with a non-Christian, the obvious question is, why the heck is that the plan? I can think of plenty of other cool plans that you know, involve Tom Cruise coming down through the roof or, or whatever it is. So, so why do we have that as the plan? And I think that's why in chapter 14, we're not just given expectations, but explanations. Uh, there are only two places in Mark's gospel where he does this. It's actually quite frustrating. Two explicit places where we're told why Jesus had to die and then rise again. Now, one of them we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 10, verse 45. Uh, And if it isn't, it should be a memory verse for you. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And what that verse told us, chapter 10, verse 45, is that Jesus' death is a substitutionary sacrifice. It was given in the place of the many to ransom us, in this case, from slavery to sin and death. But the second place that Jesus' death and resurrection is explicitly explained is here in our chapter, in chapter 14. And it's during the meal of the Passover. Now, you remember the Passover? Remember your Old Testament history? What happens? Israel is enslaved in Egypt and God, through a series of plagues, convinces Pharaoh to let his people go. And the key turning point in Pharaoh's decision is the final plague where God dispenses death to the firstborn of every household that does not have the blood of a substitutionary sacrificial lamb on the doorframe. And if they had that blood on the doorframe, they would be spared from his judgment and they would be spared from the shedding of spared by the shedding of blood. And so this was the meal that commemorated that event. Now, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus dies during the Passover, because have a look at verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take it, this is my body. He then took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it, and he said this, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So there's that for many phrase again. And in doing so, in doing this, what Jesus is doing is that he is characterizing himself as the new Passover lamb, the Passover lamb of a new and better covenant, the blood of which would protect people from God's judgment. And so again, we see this picture, substitutionary sacrifice. But again, we have this question, why was the sacrifice necessary? We've already started to see the answer that has to do with God's action, God's judgment. But we see this fully come to bear in chapter 14, again, in the Garden of Gethsemane. After the Passover meal, they all head out to Gethsemane. And maybe it's an after party. I don't know. Maybe they go to gardens after things all the time. And Jesus, at that point, disappears for some private prayer. And it's here in the privacy of Jesus praying that we see both the necessity of this sacrifice and its cost. He says to his disciples in verse 34 there, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. And then verse 35, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. 
He prays, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, he would pray that prayer three times. And each of those three times, we would see Jesus grappling with what's about to happen. Because he knows the plan. He affirms the plan. But the plan has a cost. And that cost is not merely physical. Crucifixion was a nasty way to die, but this is not what was so disturbing to Jesus. And we know that because of the little phrase he says in that prayer, take this cup from me. What's the cup? Well, the cup is a metaphor for God's wrath. Uh, We see it in a few places in Scripture. One of them is in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 7, uh, where he's speaking to Jerusalem, to Judea. Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. And if you keep reading in Isaiah 51, you'll see that God comes and takes this cup of his wrath out of the hands of Israel and he puts it into the hands of their tormentors. But here in Gethsemane, the opposite happens. The cup of wrath, which is reserved for sinners, for the many, is taken away from them and it's put into the hands of Jesus. And understanding that is critical to understanding the crucifixion. Because Jesus' death is not merely an expression of love for people, like some people think. And it's not just a pattern or a model of suffering for doing good in an evil world. No, Jesus' death was fundamentally wrath-bearing. On the cross, he endured God's righteous anger against our sin. And so the torment that Jesus is anticipating here in the garden as he prays for God to remove the cup from him, it's not primarily physical, it's spiritual. He will, in the six hours that he's on the cross, in some mysterious way, endure the eternal punishment of the sins of the world at the hands of a holy and righteous God. The author of the Hebrews tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and Jesus is about to step right in. And so even though he wants another way, he is committed to the plan, the plan that will see him substituted as a sacrifice for sin and suffer the wrath of God, so that we won't have to. That's the explanation. And that's the plan. Now, once we know the plan, we're in a position to understand the plan executed as those events play out before us, because it's here that the explanations really cease uh, and we start to see the bare events. And so as we work through them, I want us to have that plan in the back of our mind and I want us to draw our attention to three different things as we do that. First of all, I want to introduce you to the concept of Jesus as the silent servant, then Jesus as the crucified king, and then finally Jesus as the forsaken son. I'm going to look at each one of those in turn. So first of all, the silent servant. Jesus is arrested, and it's at this point that all of his predictions from chapter 14 start to come true. Chapter 14, verse 43, Judas turns up and he betrays him to the religious leaders. In verse 50, he's arrested and all of his disciples abandon him. God is striking the shepherd. And then in verse 53, they take Jesus to the high priest. And this is their kind of informal religious court. And they try to find evidence against him to put him to death. But here's the thing, they can't find any because he's innocent. So what do they do? They make stuff up. Now, question for you at this point. When somebody accuses you of doing something that you know that you have not done, how do you respond? 
If you don't know, your mum knows. You cry out injustice. You cry foul. Because there's something in us as human beings that hate being misrepresented. And that's what makes Jesus' response so confusing in this trial. Because he doesn't say a thing. Look there in verse 60. The high priest asks him, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And so throughout all of these proceedings, Jesus has not spoken once in his defence. And remember, this is the Jesus who always has the answer and sends the accusers running. And if you keep reading through, you get to chapter 15. There's a trial with Pilate. That's the formal Roman trial. Same thing. Doesn't say a word. And so why does he stop speaking now? Well, we know why, right? Because he's following the plan. If you've got your Bibles there, open up to Isaiah chapter 53. um, And we're going to have a look at something that we have seen much earlier on that God tells us about the plan. Because it's here in Isaiah chapter 53 that we see the work of his servant at play. Let me read some of it to you. It's here on the screen as well. See if it sounds familiar. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, so there's your false accusations in the trials, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. In a few short verses, we'll see him crucified with criminals. Uh, And with the rich in his death, that's a reference to the tomb of Josephus that he's laid in, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And yet here's the plan. Here's where we see it in verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. And so here in Isaiah is the scripted play for Jesus. As God's servant, he will be struck by God, crushed by God, caused to suffer. It will be the result of oppression and injustice. And yet because it's the Lord's will, he will not protest, even though he's innocent, even though he's done nothing wrong. He is following the plan. Now, of course, there is one exception to Jesus' silence, one thing of substance that he says, and that's in verse 62 of chapter 14. And that brings us to our second heading, the crucified king. In verse 62, Jesus says the one thing of importance and substance in his trials. The high priest asks him, finally, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus says for the first time unequivocally, I am. He's been hiding it up until this point, but here it is, broad as day. And he does it at his trial. And he goes on and he says, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, that's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, And in Daniel chapter 7, we see God give total dominion of his world and creation to his chosen king. And what Jesus is saying here to this point to the religious leaders is that 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 person, that's me. And that confession becomes the grounds upon which the religious leaders condemn him to death. They call out blasphemy and they take him to Pilate. uh, And the charge of claiming to be the king of the Jews is the thing that he's tried for. And the thing that I want us to observe as the events unfold in chapter 15 is just how much effort Mark goes to to show us that Jesus dies as a king. So have a look at verses 16 to 20 of chapter 15. 
This is after he's been condemned to to be crucified. And look what happens. The soldiers dress him up as a king. They put a purple robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on him. And then they mock him. They gather around him and bow down and worship him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. A little bit later in verse 26, the written notice of the charge against him, that's something they would do when you were crucified. They'd nail the charge above you so people could walk by and see what you had done. It wasn't for claiming to be the King of the Jews. It was simply the King of the Jews. And then again in verse 31, we see the mockery of the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Listen to what they say. This is in verse 31. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And so everything about Jesus' crucifixion is about the mockery and punishment of a pretender. But the, the whole account is just filled with irony because we know, as the readers, we know that they think he's all faking it, but we know he's for real. And this was important because, remember, what are the two questions that we're asking as we read through Mark's gospel? Right, the first half, chapters 1 to 8, who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. And then the second half, chapters 9 through to kind of 16, what did he come to do? He came to die and rise again. Now, we've already had in this particular uh, passage, it answered to us that second question. What, what has he come to do? He's come to die a wrath-bearing death for sinners. But it's here that Mark reminds us who it is that's dying that death. And it's completely unexpected. A suffering servant, maybe you'd expect, but the Christ, God's king, never. And yet that's the one who's dying. So Jesus, he's a silent sufferer, a crucified Christ. He's also the forsaken son. As we keep reading, Jesus is crucified. He's crucified at nine in the morning and at noon, Darkness covers the whole of the land for three hours until he dies. Darkness is an Old Testament symbol of God's judgment, pops up in a few places. And it's at the end of this darkness that we see Jesus say his final words before he dies. And we see them in verse 34, and they're significant. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's in this final moment that we get an insight into what's happening at the cross. Jesus here is quoting Psalm chapter 22, uh, and in it we get a, a critical piece of information right at the top there. It is written by David, God's king. So if you're following along in your Bibles, you'll see that kind of annotation. That's actually part of the original scriptures. And that tells us that the psalm, Psalm 22, is a messianic psalm. Ultimately, it is for Jesus and it's about Jesus. So let's read it with that in mind and see what it adds to understanding. Again, it's here up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles on you, which is always a fantastic thing to do. Verse 1. This is what Jesus quotes. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does the psalm continue? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. And so here we see the psalmist's expectation. Just as in the past, God will be faithful and save his king. But look at what happens next, verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man. 
Scorned by everyone, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. And see if you recognize verse 8. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And so the situation that the psalmist is describing is exactly the situation that Jesus is enduring as he's mocked by the chief priests, as he's nailed to a cross. And despite God's historical faithfulness to his people, the thing that happens at the cross is that God refuses to save his only beloved son. And this gives us an insight, I think, into what it means to be God forsaken. Because it doesn't mean separation, as if there was some sort of kind of rift opened up that kind of broke the Trinity when this happened, that, you know, it severed the relationship between the Father and the Son. You've got to remember that our theology kind of puts boundaries in our interpretation. Our God is one God, three persons, but one God. They do not sever or break. His being remains intact. And that pushes us then to think, what does Jesus' God forsakenness actually mean then? Well, I think it has to do with the fact, Psalm 22, that God does not intervene to save the innocent Jesus from the judgment that God himself is dispensing through wicked men. And so in this sense, it's really important to understand that the father doesn't turn his face away. Some of you guys might have been talking about this on the Facebooks recently. He doesn't just turn his face away and just let it happen as though he's not involved. The father can't turn his face away because his face is directed to, to right at Jesus, but it's towards him in judgment rather than faithful love. And that's what it means, I think. And this is what makes this whole situation so horrible because the father and the son in perfect relationship since the beginning of creation, held together by that bond of mutual love, have now had something that is driven between them, whereby the wrath of God directed at sinners is now directed primarily, completely at his son. And to experience such horror at the hands of somebody who you've only ever experienced perfect union with, that's unthinkable, isn't it? It's like the mother who throws her baby onto the rocks. And yet that's the plan. That's the plan that's agreed to by both the father and the son that the son voluntarily submits to. Because that's what it takes to save sinners like you and me. And we know that's the case and that that's what is being affected at that point because of verse 38 and 39. Have a look at there. Uh, When Jesus dies, we see two things. The curtain of the temple was torn in top, uh, in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. The curtain was that thing that separated the holy God from his unholy people in the temple. And when the curtains tear, I don't know whether you know, you're a pro curtain expert, maybe you've been reading up on it on Reddit or something like that. Curtains tear from the bottom up because they fray, right? But this one tore from the top down. It tells us that God is actively intervening, pulling it down to show us that the way is now clear to him. And the centurion, or the centurion, he's overseeing Jesus' crucifixion. There'd always be somebody standing there watching. It seems to me that he's the only one in this entire story who sees clearly because he sees the way that Jesus died and he says, surely this one is the Son of God, the Messiah and the King. So the silent sufferer, the crucified king, the forsaken son, and all of that as we see it, as we see the irony of the bare events unfold with the plan over the top, it leaves us with a question. It's a question for you and it's a question for the people that you read Mark Uncover with. The question is this, when you look at the events of the crucifixion, 
What do you see? Because as you read chapter 14 and especially chapter 15, you will be reading the story, I think, at two levels. The first level is the basic level, the level of events. And the events are quite straightforward. Jesus gets arrested. He's condemned by the religious leaders. He's beaten up. He's then taken to the Roman consulate or whatever, and he's condemned there as well. Uh, Even though he's innocent, he's beaten up, he's mocked and spat on. He's then crucified with two other political rebels. He's mocked some more. He cries out that his God has forsaken him and then he dies. And if we don't have eyes to see, all we will see in these events is just another unfortunate event in history, a tragedy that some could give meaning to, but really just an accident of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's a distinct possibility, I think, for us and for those who read it. Because once Jesus is arrested, he goes passive. He goes all floppy doll on everything. He's no longer the main actor in the events. He's a passive participant. He's still the centre of attention, but now things are being done to him. He's lost his proactive edge. And if we're not careful, we'll look upon this passivity and conclude that Jesus is a powerless victim, finally outwitted by the plotting of evil men, And what we'll do is we will make the same mistake that the chief priests make. And we'll look at those events and his silence and we'll see it as a sign of Jesus' defeat. And if all we see is the level of events, what will we conclude? Well, all we'll see is that Jesus is a humiliated, pathetic loser. But that's so important as to why we then know the plan. Because there is another level, the level of significance And as we see those same events play out, it shows us that Jesus, who is pathetic and beaten, Mark enables us not to see the loser, but the Lord. A king who, at great personal cost, voluntarily submitted himself to the will of God and drank the cup and was crushed by him. And contrary to the taunts of the priests, refused to come down from the cross, not because he couldn't, but because he wouldn't, because he was intent on saving others according to the plan. It looked like one thing, but it was actually the opposite. So the question, the question for us, the question for those you read the gospel with is this. When you see Jesus up on the cross, what do you see? Do you see the pretender or the plan? The loser or the Lord?